Well, good morning, everyone. It's good to be with you this morning in the house of the Lord. It's wonderful to, to hear the singing of praise to our great God. It's wonderful to reflect on what really matters. It's wonderful to remind ourselves, forgive me, Jesus. No one will ever regret anything that they have given up, given over because of Jesus, but will find that it will be rewarded one day. Just one administrative thing that I want to mention before we get into the sermon this morning. Many of you, at least the official members of the church, would have received an email from the church office on Friday afternoon concerning the process of the Constitution and the bylaws. And I just want to bring that to your attention this morning. We did vote in February to approve a new Constitution and the bylaws, but we also agreed that the process would continue because there was a need for more feedback and interaction, and many in the congregation expressed the desire to be part of that process. And so the email that went out, and there's copies available uh, in letter form on the welcome desk out in the foyer, just explain how we're going to do that. It's, it's a bulky process to move forward as a, as, a, as a body, so we want to do it in as orderly a fashion as we can, but we really want to hear from you the feedback that you want to give, the suggestions that you have. And so you can get a copy of the Constitution from the church office, look it over, and submit feedback to the elders uh, who will make sure they're passed on to the committee that's working with us. And we'll continue that process over the next couple of months. And then, Lord willing, we'll have a, a new and improved or even updated version for the middle of May, and we'll be able to get congregational approval for it again. So... Just an administrative matter, uh, just to make sure that we all know what's going on and we're walking in the same direction. Uh, this is also a reminder, you might want to turn your cell phones off uh, as we prepare to get into our time in the Word. S.I. McMillan was a medical missionary doctor to Africa many decades ago. He tells the story of a young woman who wanted to go to college. But her heart sank when she read the question on the application form that asked, are you a leader? Being both honest and conscientious, she wrote no and returned the application expecting the worst. To her surprise, this letter re returned to her from the college. Dear applicant, a study of application forms reveals that this year our college will have 1,452 new leaders. We are accepting you because we feel it is imperative that they have at least one follower. <laughs> there are many different definitions of leadership. And much of the conflict that happens in the world is between leaders of different philosophies and worldviews about leadership. But there is only one who has come who has given the correct worldview that not only corresponds to the truth, that leads to life. His name is Jesus Christ. He is the God-man who came to live among men, and he is the ultimate leader. He came to lead his people in a new exodus out of the sin and death and into the promised land of heaven. But in that leadership... He is not looking for those who want to continue to do things their own way. No, he issues a command to those around him to become his followers. 
And as we continue in our study in the Gospel of Matthew, we come to the end of chapter 4, where we will see our Lord who is calling those first disciples to come and follow him as he begins to preach the gospel publicly and is building a new community of believers in the new covenant. So I invite you as we read our passage for this morning to stand in honor of God and his holy word as we read from Matthew chapter 4, verses 18 to 25. And the inspired and holy word of God says, While walking by the Sea of Galilee, he saw two brothers, Simon, who is called Peter, and Andrew, his brother, casting a net into the sea, for they were fishermen. And he said to them, Follow me, and I will make you fishers of men. Immediately they left their nets and followed him. And going on from there, he saw two other brothers, James, the son of Zebedee, and John, his brother, in the boat with Zebedee, their father, mending their nets, and he called them. Immediately, they left the boat and their father and followed him. And he went throughout all Galilee, teaching in their synagogues and proclaiming the gospel of the kingdom and healing every disease and every affliction among the people. So his fame spread throughout all Syria. And they brought him all the sick, those oppressed with various diseases and pains, those oppressed by demons, those having seizures and paralytics, and he healed them. And great crowds followed him from Galilee and the Decapolis and from Jerusalem and Judea and from beyond the Jordan. And so, Father, as we have read your word this morning, we now sit under its authority and ask for your instruction and guidance. And we thank you that you would do that. For our aim and our goal is to glorify the Lord Jesus Christ, in whose name we pray. Amen. Please be seated. As we begin this morning, we see that our first major point is come and follow me. We saw that Jesus began his public ministry with the clarion call, repent, for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. Turn away from the old way of living to the living God, to the kingdom of heaven. And in the chapters to come, he will spell out what living in the kingdom will look like. It will include teaching on discipleship and what it means to follow the Lord. And as we saw last week, he began this ministry in Capernaum. At least the ministry in Galilee, he began in Capernaum, which is exactly where the Isaiah the prophet had said it would begin 700 years beforehand. And so we find him in Capernaum in the region of Galilee, as we saw it was a strategic place for him to begin his ministry. Well, the text begins with him walking by the Sea of Galilee, also known in other places in the Gospels as the Sea of Tiberias or the Lake of Gennesaret. The surface of this sea is about 630 feet below sea level. The Jordan River enters it on the north, flows out of it into the south, where the Jordan River continues about another 65 miles before it empties into the Dead Sea. And the sea itself is surrounded by mountains that rise over 2,600 feet above the lake. And thus it is that wind streams can course through the mountain ranges and swoop down over the valley, causing storms to develop quickly. And that phenomenon will be seen later in the Gospels. Well, there are a whole bunch of cities and villages that are of different sizes around Capernaum, around the lake. There's at least nine. 
many of which play into the life and ministry of Jesus. And so we have a brief summary of the situation that lays out what we'll look at this morning. And in our first point, there will be several sub-points, but we'll move through some of them very quickly, and some of them will camp out just a little longer. But the first is, there were the first two disciples. And our text says, while walking by the Sea of Galilee, he saw two brothers, Simon, who was called Peter, and Andrew, his brother. According to John 44, Simon and his brothers were from Bethsaida, but later settled in Capernaum. And in this first encounter that Jesus has with these two men, or is it the first encounter that Jesus has with these two men? For it seems from the context of John chapter 1 that there was interaction that had taken place between Jesus and these two men beforehand. In that context of John chapter 1, Andrew hears from John the Baptist about Jesus and actually goes and meets him. He then goes back and takes his brother Peter and says, we have found the Messiah. As Peter comes then and meets with Jesus, the Lord says to him, you are Simon, the son of John, you shall be called Cephas, which means Peter. Now what's interesting is that Peter and Cephas both mean rock. And that comes into play later in the gospel and the interaction between Jesus and Peter. Now, it's likely that these two disciples, Simon and, and, and lost my place, Simon and Andrew, were with him because in, in chapter 2 of the gospel of John, disciples went on with Jesus to the wedding at Cana. So it seems then as Jesus interacts with these two disciples, he's had some experience with them before the events of chapter 4 of the Gospel of Matthew. In fact, there are some commentators who make the case that for almost the first year of Jesus' ministry, it was done in basic obscurity, and that Matthew picks it up at a point where his ministry has been more public. But be that as it may, there was some previous interaction between these men, and so as Jesus is walking by on that first day and sees these two brothers, he sees them casting a net into the sea for they were fishermen and they had had some type of previous contact before. They were fishermen, which was a common enterprise around the Sea of Galilee. They would use these great big nets that were about 20 to 25 feet in diameter with stones and weights all around the outer part of the, of the net. So as they dropped it down into the water, it would flow straight down to the bottom and trap the fish. And it was a type of net that could be used either by a man fishing in somewhat shallow water or it could be used in deeper water with a rope that would let it down and pull it back up. So they're working. And while they are working, Jesus calls them. It might have been during the workday, but we just know that he seemed to have some knowledge of Jesus beforehand. We don't have here just a spontaneous, emotional, spur-of-the-moment decision on their part. But Jesus makes a startling confession to them, fishermen or fishers of men. And so he said to them, follow me and I will make you fishers of men. Now Matthew doesn't give us a lot of details here. So perhaps we need to turn to Luke chapter 5 and get a few more details of what has happened just in the immediate context. In, John chapter, uh, in, Peter, in Luke chapter 5, Jesus is preaching and he says to Peter, throw your nets out into the deep water. And Peter says, Master, we've been fishing all night. We've not caught a thing. But something in the interaction causes him to obey. And he says, okay, because you have commanded it, I will throw the nets. And then there's this miraculous catch of fish. 
Well, Peter is overwhelmed. And so he, he responds and he says, depart me from me, for I'm a sinful man, O Lord. He has a recognition of who he is, and before the one he is standing is Jesus. But Jesus says to him in Luke chapter 5, do not be afraid. From now on, you will be catching men. So this fits with what we see happening here in Matthew 4. Follow me, Peter. Walk with me. I will teach you, and you will catch men. And what was their response? Immediately, they left their nets and followed him. Now, Peter, we know, did maintain a home in Capernaum. You can actually go to his house today. If you go on an exploration of the Middle East, there's a place we know where his house was. We know that reading between the lines of the gospel accounts, he was married. There's even an account of Jesus meeting his mother-in-law and healing her. So he did maintain a home in Capernaum. But life would still be different now because he was now under new management. He would still have his responsibilities but they would be under a different light. Now, when Jesus says, follow me, this was the first time of 13 occasions in the Gospel of Matthew where Jesus says this. And what's interesting is this was not the normal way that it happened between teachers and students in the first century. It was often students who would seek out a rabbi that they wanted to follow and would actually go and ask, can I follow you? Can I learn from you? And the rabbi would have to give the approval. But that's not what's happening here. Jesus is the one who is calling out to those to follow him. He knows why he has come. He knows that he is the one who has come to seek and to save the lost. Those are active verbs. Jesus is the grand pursuer. Jesus is the one that takes the initiative. He's in control of the process. And he is the one that calls these men to follow and as we look at the pattern as it unfolds in the Gospel of Matthew, those that are called are those who come to Jesus, submit to his authority, confess him as Lord of their lives, and follow him wherever he may lead them. If they're entering into a new lifestyle, not a one-time decision, a new lifestyle of following Jesus. And it's interesting to find that Jesus calls these common fishermen in Galilee, to follow him. He didn't go to Jerusalem and interact with the religious leaders. Now, we know about the ongoing conflict that happens between the Galileans and the Judeans, but here Jesus calls these men and he says, follow me. We need to take a deeper look at that because this is in the imperatival form. It's an imperative. It means it's a command. This was a command that Jesus gave to Peter and Andrew. It was not an invitation. It was not a suggestion. In fact, it was an imperial summons coming from the king of kings who expected a positive response. Jesus knows who he is. He is the God-man. He is the anointed son of God who has the approval of the father. And he commands. And when he does, he expects a response. He is the one who says, repent. He is the one who says, follow me. Now, this is not a message that was just left alone to Jesus. The early church understood this message. That is what they went out and preached. For example, the apostle Paul, on his missionary journey where he's in the city of Athens, preaching to the pagans that are there, what did he say? He said, God commands 
all men everywhere to repent because he has fixed a day in which he will judge the world in righteousness. This command to repent, to turn away, and to follow him leads to a complete change of lifestyle, moving out of the kingdom of darkness into the kingdom of light, moving away from the kingdom of men into the kingdom of heaven. Sometimes I get the idea when I hear how the gospel is sometimes presented, it gives the idea that somehow Jesus is just sitting around just like a bashful savior, just hoping that somebody will believe in him. That is not the picture we get in scripture. He is the sovereign one. He is the God-man. He is Emmanuel, God with us. He's the one who commands us to come to him. And he repeats it as he says in John 15, you did not choose me, but I chose you and appointed you that you should go and bear fruit. Jesus is in control of the process, not us. He chose Peter. He chose Andrew to be fishers of men. Now, it is true that at times in the prophets, the metaphor for fishing can be thought of as judgment. But here, it is actually a, a metaphor for rescue and deliverance. Jesus is working through those that he has called to follow him. And they will play a role in, as it were, having the spiritual net of God that will draw up those who are lost in the abyss of death and sin and bring them into the light, into eternal life in the net that he causes his servants to throw down. And when he calls them, he says that men are to put Christ above career. He is the one who called both Peter and Andrew. He is the one in charge. And this is not just a, a new thing. This is something that has happened all throughout the scriptures. If we read the story from beginning to end, we see that Jesus is doing here at the beginning of the New Testament what, in fact, God did all throughout the Old Testament. In the words of one commentator, God always chooses his partners. It is God who chose Abraham and said, through you the nations will be blessed. It is God who chose Moses and said, you will lead my people out of the exodus. It is God who chose Israel and said, because I love you, I have put my favor upon you and you will be a light to the nations. He chose David to be a king who would bring in the line that would lead to the Messiah. And here we see that he is still choosing people. He is calling them. And he still does today. He calls to those to come to him. And so in gospel ministry, we have to understand that if we're going to put our Bibles together from beginning to end, that there are actually two types of calls that go out. There is the external call, whereby the gospel is preached and offered to all as a very real offering, where we're called to preach the gospel from one end of the world to the other, to declare his glories among the nations, where people are called to repent and believe. But we know that many do not repent and believe. Why is that? Because there's also an internal call where we have language like God gives them eyes to see and ears to hear. God removes the, the heart of stone and gives them a heart of flesh. God is the one who wakens a soul that is dead to sin 
And this internal calling is what we call the effectual calling because it is effective as it moves in the person who now has a new heart, who now has a new will, and who now gladly comes to the Lord Jesus Christ. Left in his sinful nature, man will always make a decision against God because in his sinful nature, he despises the things of God and he cannot please God, as Paul told the church in Rome. But what God does is he gives him a new heart a new will, a new mind, and now he desires what he did not desire before. And therefore, as he hears the call, he eagerly runs after Jesus to follow him. God can call fishermen, as he did with Simon and Peter. God can call others as he chooses. We must let God be sovereign and in control, because that is what he says he is. When Paul was writing to the church in Corinth in chapter 1 of 1 Corinthians, he said, not many of you were rich or powerful or wise or whatever when God called you. That God is the one that is drawing and bringing people into his fold because he is the one that came. He sent his son to seek and to save the lost. And he saves all kinds of people from all kinds of situations. And the number that we see at the end of the book of Revelation is a number that no one can count. We don't have a stingy, tight-fisted God. We have a lavish God who gives life to the dead. In the 11th century, King Henry III of Bavaria was growing tired of the responsibilities of being in the monarchy. So he made an application to the local monastery and asked a friar to be admitted to spend the rest of his life in the monastery. And the friar said, your majesty, do you understand that the pledge here is one of obedience? It'll be hard for you because you've been a king. Oh, yes, I understand, said King Henry III. The rest of my life I will be obedient to you as you are obedient to Christ. Then this is what I will tell you to do, said the friar. Go back to your throne and serve faithfully in the place where God has put you. And when King Henry died, a statement was written, the king learned to rule by being obedient. We may tire of our roles and responsibilities and whatever status we have in life, but if God has planted us in that situation and has called us and has redeemed us, he wants us to be light shining in the darkness that is around us, proclaiming that there is a king and there is a kingdom and that people must enter it for eternal life. Peter and Andrew dropped everything and followed Jesus. They knew who they were following. They knew that they needed to follow. And who did they follow? Him. In in Judaism, a disciple could follow after a rabbi or a teacher for a certain time and then become like his master and become a teacher himself. But Jesus is making clear here, I am always the master. You will follow me now and always and follow no one else. Because once we have encountered him, We cannot go back to the status quo. We now have a new king. We're citizens of a new kingdom, of a new new nation, as it were, the kingdom of God. And things will look different. So after Jesus calls Peter and Andrew, we now have the story of two more brothers. And after going on from there, he saw two other brothers, James, the son of Zebedee, and John, his brother, in the boat with Zebedee, their father. 
Now this time it is not just the career that Jesus will call them to leave. It will be the closest members of their family. Now we've already talked a little bit about fishermen, so we'll just keep moving on where Jesus asks the question, mending nets or mending lives? We're told that they were in the boat with Zebedee, their father, mending their nets, and he called them. The mending of the nets was that basic work that had to be done at the end of each day because if you're throwing your nets into the water, they're going to be affected by the teeth and the fins of fish. They're going to hit rocks. They're going to suffer damage. And if you want to be able to catch fish the next time, you need to make sure your nets are in good working order. And notice how the Lord calls them while they're working. They're not just sitting around. The Lord comes and says, I've got a new career in calling for you. And this is a common theme in Scripture, that God calls people while they're working. God called Gideon while he was threshing grain on the floor. He called the prophet Elisha while he was plowing in the fields. He called the prophet Amos who was taking care of herds and tending to the sycamore fig trees. He called Matthew while he was sitting at the table as a tax collector. Wherever you are in life, when the Lord calls you, he says come. And he's the one who has a right to set a new course for your life. Now, we don't know how much response Jesus, uh, James and, and, and John had with Peter and Andrew before this. We don't know if they knew about the interaction that Jesus had with them already when he called them. But we do know their response. Immediately, they left their boat and their father, and they followed him. Jesus called. They answered. And in doing so, they showed that if the gospel is to be above career if Christ is to be above our job, then Christ is also to be above him. They left their boat and their father and they followed him. And when Jesus calls us, we go because he alone knows the way. For he alone is the way. He claims, rightfully so, the place of the highest value and greatest treasure in our lives. And he will say that later when he gives a sermon on the mount and he will say, seek first. Above all, the kingdom of God and his righteousness. And then all these things will be added to you. Martin Luther captured well this, the idea of this song. When in the song, A Mighty Fortress is Our God, he said this, Let goods and kindred go, this mortal life also. The body they may kill, God's truth abideth still. His kingdom is forever. James and John show us that when Jesus calls, we are ready to leave everything because he ends up being the most important thing in life. We have this hope one day that every knee will bow in heaven and on earth and under the earth and confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. Therefore, we need to learn on an ongoing basis that allegiance to Jesus is stronger than any earthly attachment. We just sang... Give me Jesus. You may have this whole world, but give me Jesus. Do we believe that? Because that is the calling of Jesus upon our lives. Of course, we don't abandon our responsibilities as a life as a Christian. We are still to honor our parents, take care of our families, be the best workers in the office, in the warehouse, on the farm. But all of that is now done under the lordship of Christ and in his power. 
in this calling, follow me. Remember who the me is in this command. The eternal son of God who took on flesh to come and live out the perfect righteousness of God for the whole of his life. And to die the perfect death, the only death that God could accept for the punishment of our sins. And who rose to heaven in glory and now sits at the right hand of the Father praying on our behalf. That is the one who says, follow me. And he even warns us. It'll be costly. But he tells us that, yes, Following him, we will take care of our families. Following him, yes, we will do our jobs. Following him, yes, we will study for the exam. But never at the expense of disobeying him or dishonoring him. Peter and James and John will become part of the the inner core that Jesus shared many intimate and strategic moments with. He initially will call them as disciples. Later they will be called apostles. Disciples initially are learners. Apostles are commissioned and sent out as spiritual leaders. But the responsibility is the same. Fish for men and train them to go out and fish for others. In his book, The Complete Disciple, Paul Powell describes the conditions that he has seen often in churches as he's gone around doing his training. He says, many churches today remind me of a laboring crew trying to gather in a harvest while they sit in the tool shed. They go to the tool shed every Sunday and they study bigger and better methods of agriculture, sharpen their hoes, grease their tractors, and then get up and go home. They meet again during the week where they study bigger and better methods of agriculture, sharpen their hoes, grease their tractors, and then go home. They do this week in and week out. But very few of them actually go out into the harvest to bring it in. The command that we have is to be fishers of men, and it's upon all of us. But there are still 3.4 billion people in the world without a witness to Jesus Christ. There's still work for us to do. So if he has said, come and follow me, he also says, come and be saved. Now, in verses 18 to 22, we see those that are called that are part of the inner circle in the ministry of Jesus. They will go along with him during his time as the Messiah and learn from him. And they they are the ones that he will send out to represent him and to continue the gospel going forth. As we get to verse 23, we see that we now have the larger crowds that kind of gathered around being curious about what is happening. And what's interesting in the gospels is that it's often the crowds who stand in between the inner circle and the religious leaders, both of them pulling at the crowd to come one way or to come the other. As Jesus went throughout Galilee, during that time, it's estimated there were at least 200 villages and the total population of the region, about 300,000. Now, Matthew is organizing his gospel material at this point. And so what we have here, beginning in verse 23, we're going to enter into a section that's going to take us to the end of chapter 9. It's going to be the focus on the ministry of Jesus in Galilee. And so before Matthew gives us the details of what Jesus did in Galilee, he gives us a summary. And so in a few verses, we see it's compact. What Jesus did is he went all throughout Galilee, and the miracles are stacked on top of one another. 
That's the summary. As we get to chapter 5 and move to the end of chapter 9, we'll see it in detail, how these things played out. Matthew is getting us ready for this next section that he has put together in his gospel. And what's the summary of the ministry of Jesus that we'll see in greater detail as we move along through the rest of the gospel? The first is, there's a great message. And he went throughout all Galilee, teaching in their synagogues and proclaiming the gospel of the kingdom and healing every disease and every affliction among the people. The word synagogue there comes from the word meaning gathering place. It was the proper place for them to meet. It was the place where religious instruction took place, where they studied the law. The synagogue was the center of Jewish life in the first century. And it's the logical place to begin. Matthew summarizes what the ministry of Jesus will look like over the next five chapters by saying it'll be teaching and proclaiming and the performance of miracles. Teaching. The things about the kingdom of heaven, for those that have had some experience, what it means then to grow and being a citizen of the kingdom of heaven. Preaching, proclaiming to those who yet need to hear, who will come and hear, who is this Jesus? And healing of physical illness and ailments, pointing to a, a greater need to be forgiven of sins. And we'll talk about the role of miracles in Matthew as we move forward, because Matthew points out many of them. But wherever Jesus went... We are told that he will proclaim the gospel of the kingdom, announcing that the rule and reign of God is here. The kingdom of God is that sovereign rule of God over his people, over all who repent and believe. And the invitation will go out that men may enter the kingdom of heaven by turning away from the old way of living and turning to the living God. And we don't have to try to figure out how God can be absolutely sovereign and each person must decide. They're both plainly stated in the scriptures and we just accept them because in the words of Charles Spurgeon, you don't need to reconcile friends. And so when I go out and preach the gospel, I preach and ask the person to repent and believe. But knowing that if they do repent and believe, it is because God has gone before me preparing the way and opening their hearts so that they're able to hear, they're able to see, and they want to receive. Well, if there was a great message, there's a great ministry. So his fame spread all throughout Syria, and they brought to him all the sick, those who were afflicted with various diseases and pains, those oppressed by demons, those having seizures and paralytics, and he healed them. Well, if this is going on, of course, there's going to be a lot of talking. Have you heard about this new itinerant preacher that's going throughout Galilee? You won't believe the things that we've seen, and his fame would spread. But what we see from the beginning is Jesus makes clear who he is by showing that he has power. He has control over the forces of nature, over all spiritual forces, because he is God in the flesh. The beloved Son with whom the Father is pleased. The one upon whom the Spirit rested to anoint and empower him to preach. And those powers will be on display over the next several chapters. As what we've seen in summary form will now be explained in detail. Of what Jesus did in his ministry in Galilee. Well after the great message and a great ministry we find a great following. And great crowds followed him from Galilee and the Decapolis and from Jerusalem and Judea and from beyond the Jordan. 
It's as if Matthew wants us to get the, the map out and look at the region and see that they're gathering from all directions, from north, south, east, and west, from the region of the Decapolis, which means the ten cities, this specific region that would have been to the east and south of the Sea of Galilee. They came from Judea, which was further south. They came from all the regions of, Jude of Galilee, which was in the north. They're coming from various backgrounds. They're coming from various directions. They want to hear. They want to see. They want to be part of this spectacle. But how many of them actually believe? Because as we saw last week, miracles are not a guarantee of anything. They do not assure faith and repentance. They do not assure a change of life. Because ultimately we're dependent upon God who does the work in the heart of man that results in man responding to God. Jesus commands people to become his followers. Have you heard that call? And when Jesus calls us, he says, you are my disciples. Follow me. I am the Lord. I know the way. I'm to be number one in your life. Now, a disciple is always a follower, but not every follower is a disciple. A disciple is one who follows and keeps up with the teacher and walks with him and learns from him and becomes more like him. A follower can just be a, a looky Luke who just comes to see what's going on. And then when it gets a little hot, a little uncomfortable, a little inconvenient, off they go. And we will see that all throughout the Gospel of Matthew. A follower just comes along for what the benefits might be. A disciple comes along because he wants Jesus above all else. As his disciples, we are all called to be fishers of men. And we should see it as a privilege. Imagine sharing with someone the good news that they can be set free from sin and death. Imagine offering to someone the cure for their sin-sick soul. Imagine being the spokesman for someone who is lost in their sin and rebellion that they can come to know the living God. Do you see it that way? The late Dr. Evie Hill was a great preacher in the Watts section of Los Angeles. A gifted communicator, a gifted preacher, a man who influenced many for the keep the kingdom of God. But he commented that the church throughout her history has always struggled with the temptation to being keepers of the aquarium instead of fishers of men. So it is today. Many of the struggles that happen in churches are related to keeping the aquarium. And all the struggles and turf wars that it brings, instead of being focused on being fishers of men. It's a serious call that goes out to all. And when, call, when he calls us, he does not call us to be casual in our walk with him as if somehow it's a take it or leave it proposition. Nor does he call us to be merely convinced that he can do great things. It's a call of commitment. In the words of Bonhoeffer, when Jesus calls a man, he bids him come and die. And that's exactly what Jesus said. If you'll come after me, take up your cross daily and follow me.
We die to our old way of living. We die to the things that were before. If we're in Christ, we're a new creation. We move on in that new creation. And it will be costly to follow Jesus. But my friends, it will be more costly not to. In the next few chapters, as we enter into what perhaps is the most well-known part of the book of Matthew, we're going to be looking at the Sermon on the Mount. And on the Sermon on the Mount, Jesus is going to show us what kingdom life looks like. What are those who redeemed doing? What do they look like? What is their attitude? What does it mean to grow in discipleship, to grow in being a kingdom person? And he's going to have some challenges for us along the way. But because not only is he the sovereign one, he's the merciful one. He's the sufficient one. He's able to meet us at our needs and to guide us. But what are some lessons we can hang on to until we begin this wonderful sermon next week? Well, the call of Jesus requires a response. Have you heard his call and answered it? Can you honestly say today that you are following Jesus? The gospel calls us to value Christ above our career and our kin. Is that an honest reflection of your life right now? Is it an honest reflection of my life right now? Do I value Jesus above everything else? So that I have a purpose now for why I work. I understand the reason why I work. I see it in its proper perspective. Do you have your strategy for fishing for men? You know, we all have the fishing license already in Christ. And the season is open. How are we doing? Let's just keep going to the Lord. Because our God can do great things. But they need to be done in his way, for his purposes, according to his method. And we're trusting him to be at work in your life. And are you a disciple of Jesus or a follower of the crowd? There are many Christians in the world today that have to face this very question daily. Some of them today are in the Ukraine where the church has been growing over two decades. And now they're showing their medal. Are they followers of Christ? Disciples of Christ, or were they pretending all along? Brothers and sisters in Asia, in Latin America, in North Africa, face persecution every day. And then show whether they're really a disciple of Christ or just a follower of the crowd. We've not yet had that come here, but there's no promise that it won't. good for us to ask the question today so that if it comes we'll know the proper answer that we are to give let us pray father we thank you that we get to follow a really good savior an all-powerful lord who is not only merciful but who is able and who will be exalted one day above all And so, Father, even now, we bow the knee and confess that Jesus is Lord. But we also confess while we are on our knees 
that we have failed you. And so we repent. And we turn from our sins and we say, oh God, help us. And thank you that because your spirit is within us, you will. And you will empower us to greater obedience and greater love for you and greater boldness and greater joy as we serve you and as we follow after our Lord Jesus Christ, in whose name we pray. Amen. It's been great to worship with you this morning, church. We've had a great, heard a great message, a great call to be a disciple of Christ. I invite you to stand as we close out our service, as we sing, take my life and let it be. It may sound a little different, but the words are still the same.